Romans 5 is where we find ourselves this morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. It looks like Jim is coming to your rescue. Romans 5, picking up where we left off. Paul in the middle of his imaginary debate, his back and forth with a reader in Rome. You've seen politicians do this, right? They know what their opponent is going to say during a debate, and they answer their opponent's objection before the opponent has a chance to voice it. My opponent is going to tell you that raising taxes will be good for the economy, but I'm here to tell you the opposite is true. Raising taxes is bad for business, and business drives the economy. Answering the objection before it's voiced. Paul's been doing this exact same thing the entire letter. Not in person, but in writing. And not with an opponent, not with somebody who hates him and wants him dead, but with a reader who is perhaps genuinely confused about the gospel of Jesus Christ, or maybe confused about what Paul thinks about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because remember, Paul's never been to the church in Rome. So most of the people reading this letter have never met him. At most, they've heard about him, and maybe not even that. So Paul's being extra careful, extra meticulous in laying out his theology, point by point, concept by concept, building up these last four chapters, building up marvelously, right? Exquisitely, step by step, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He started off talking about the need for it, the universal need. He talk, talked about why we need to be saved. And then he talked, he, he talked in, in depth about what we're saved from. And he talked about how we're not saved. We're not saved through works. We're not saved by our heritage. And we left off last week. He, was, he finally reached his climax. He told us how we are saved. We left off last week, chapter 5, verse 1, Paul declaring we're saved by grace through faith. Having been justified by faith, Paul said, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war is over. God the Father has invited us home. And having said that, having worked up to that, to that concept, that glorious truth, point by point, if this was a wall, Paul would be building brick by brick, right? Having gotten there, Paul knows that at least some people aren't buying it. He knows that at least some of the people reading this letter in Rome are going to scoff at this point, scoff in disbelief. Saved by grace through faith. Paul, you really expect us to believe that? No work on our part. No effort on our part. No sacrifice on our behalf. Just just receive by faith the forgiveness that Jesus purchased on the cross because he decided to? Just believe it, that God saved us because he loves us. Yeah, Paul's been saying. Oh, come on, Paul, his reader answers. That's too good to be true, and I've been doing this long enough to know if something sounds too good to be true, it is. So Paul, let's set your little fantasy, your little fairy tale aside. And let's go back and talk more about the law and sacrifices because I'm pretty sure that's where the real answer is. Except no, Paul says. I said what I said. 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him also, sorry, through whom also, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But he knows his reader isn't done. He knows, in fact, the next argument that his reader is going to raise against this gospel of grace. Stand in grace, rejoice in hope. Paul, look around. I don't know how it is where you are, but in Rome, Christians are being persecuted. There's violence. There's bloodshed. And even for those who escape persecution, there's still sickness and poverty and family strife and all of the problems of living common to humanity. I can't believe it's different for you in Corinth. I haven't heard about it being different for Christians anywhere. So you really, Paul, have got to rethink this whole idea of standing in grace and rejoicing in hope because personally, I don't see it. Paul knows this is the next place his reader is going to go because it's the next objection anyone who's not convinced that we're saved by grace through faith. It's the next place that anyone is going to go. And understandably so. It's a reasonable question. If we've been saved, if we're standing in grace, why is life so hard? The way Paul knew the question was going to occur to his readers is it occurs to all of us, doesn't it? Has it occurred to you? Of course it has. You don't have to raise your hand. I'm going to assume that everybody's... Because here's the thing, I know most of you. I know most of you. I know your stories. I look around the room, and in almost every seat, there's a story of things being really hard right now. I look around the room, and I know that there are families that are dealing with strife. I know that fam there, there, there are families that are, that are mourning, grieving. I look around, there are people battling cancer. Cancer's doing what cancer does. I know that in some families, sin is doing what sin does. Just in this room, just in these seats, just those watching online right now, there is a lot, a lot of pain. A lot of reasons to wonder, is this what salvation is supposed to be like? I'm not sure what I was expecting, but I was expecting, I think, I think I was expecting it to be a little easier. I know you found yourself thinking that. Not, maybe not in a theological sense, but in a practical, everyday sense, just looking around, just feeling, experiencing, life pressing in. You've, you've, you've asked, God, really? This is what salvation is supposed to be like. This is what a loving God has saved me to. This, this is how forgiveness feels. Of course you felt that way. Of course you've asked those questions. It's the most natural response into the world to what's happening all around us, to what's happening to us every single day. If God loved me, if God saved me, why does, it, why does life hurt so much? If God saved me, why is life so hard so always? Paul knew we were going to ask that. We don't live in Rome, but we're just as much his readers. And he knew as soon as he started talking about standing in grace and rejoicing in hope, some of us at least would say, Paul, seriously? So notice what Paul does. Before we even get a chance to say it, 
before we can answer Paul, I'm not sure. Before we even can formulate our rebuttal, Paul, verse 3, Paul says, and, and I'm not done. And you didn't let me finish. We stand in grace, we rejoice in hope, and we glory in tribulations. He's anticipating the objection. My opponent, Paul says, is going to bring up trouble and trial and pain and persecution. My opponent is going to talk to you about the misery of the world. And you know what? He's right. I don't want you to think for a moment that I disagree. I don't want you to have the slightest doubt. I know better than most people this world hurts. And you know what else Paul is saying? This world still hurts after we're saved. This world, this is probably not a new idea. You've probably noticed this. This world hurts more for the Christian. It hurts more because we see more pain. We care more about what others are going through before we cared mostly about ourselves. But God has given us a heart for others, and so we see more and we care more. We empathize more. And we experience more pain ourselves because Satan cares more about us than he used to. Before, we were his ally, unwittingly, but we were his ally. Now, we've made ourselves a threat. And Paul is saying, verse 3, I'm not going to stand here and pretend all of that isn't true. I'm not going to try to convince you that isn't real. But I am going to tell you and do my best to convince you, as believers in Jesus Christ, while we aren't spared tribulation, in fact, Jesus promises us tribulation, while we're not spared tribulation as believers in Jesus Christ, we have something that we didn't have before. We have something the world doesn't know. We have the opportunity to do something very special with tribulation. Verse 3, we get to glorify God in them. And before the reader has a chance to say, Paul, I'm going to need a urine sample because I'm pretty sure you're high. Before the reader has a chance to say, Paul, what are you talking about? Paul says, let me tell you what I'm talking about. We also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Yes, Paul says, there's pain in this life. Unquestionably, undeniably, sometimes it seems unceasingly, Jesus wasn't wrong. In this life we have tribulations, but for the Christian, listen, for the Christian, Paul's telling us the pain has a point. For the Christ follower, Paul's telling us the pain has a purpose. What's the purpose? God has a lot of purposes for pain. God uses pain in a lot of different ways. But the reason Paul's talking about here, pain sanctifies. Trials can bring us closer to Jesus. Tribulation can establish our hearts in Jesus. This life is designed to make us more like Jesus. How? Paul just told us. Tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, you could translate endurance. You could also translate single-mindedness. Trials have a way of separating the things that matter from the things that don't. Think about fasting for a moment. What is fast? What's the, why do we fast? What's the purpose of fasting? It's to focus on spiritual things. It's to deny our flesh and, and, and consciously choose to focus on the things that are eternal, the things that are spiritual. 
Fasting, think about it this way, is a self-imposed trial. And Paul is saying the trials that come upon us can serve the same function. Separate wheat from chaff. The things that matter from the things that don't. And as that happens, as our focus is sharpened, character is produced. Really what Paul is saying is character is revealed. It's proven. Enduring trials shows what we're made of. The idea is the familiar one of the metal worker, the goldsmith, the silversmith, refining metal, turning up the heat to see what's pure and impure. The metal worker turns up the heat to see what he or she is really dealing with. God turns up the heat in our lives to show us who we are in Christ Jesus. Another metaphor, drill sergeant in basic training. Haven't had the pleasure, I have friends who have, and they tell me the purpose of basic training in every branch of the service is to break you down in order to build you back up. Break you down, but in the process reveal strength and resiliency and resource you didn't know you had. The difference between that and God's boot camp that we are attending right now, you and I are in God's boot camp, the difference is that the strength that gets revealed isn't our strength, it's his strength in us. Trials produce perseverance. Perseverance proves character. And that proven character points us to hope. And hope, we know in Scripture, isn't a maybe, it's a certainty, right? Our proven resilience, our Christ-like character under stress shows us, proves to us that Christ is in us, that Christ is working in us, that Christ is changing us. He's making us more like him. But, but see, it's a package deal. When we realize that, that, that God is in us and he's working in us, we're reminded of the future that he has for us, but it's a package deal. We just can't skip to that step. God, can I skip the trials and can I just remember the glorious future that you, per that you purchased? Oh, if only it worked that way. But he says, no, no, no. He says, I know you. And I know that you need number one and number two to get to number three. The way we get to hope is by letting trials focus us, by allowing our ability to endure through trials, prove to us, verse five, hope does not, will not, cannot disappoint. Trials prove to us, as the Holy Spirit shows himself strong in us, that God is still there for us. And he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. Now, we can read that all we want. And, and we can raise our hand and say, Amen. I believe that. And most of you would walking in here today. But the pain of life, Paul is saying, the pain of life proves it. The pain of life can prove God is real and he loves us if we let it if we're willing to face trials and tribulation in his strength, in the grace he supplies, that will prove to the world possibly, to us certainly, we're not who we were anymore. We're not who we used to be. And the only explanation for that is Jesus is real and alive in us. And as we see the power of the Holy Spirit sustain us, 
Carry us, change us. As we see God redeem the pain in our lives, it proves to anyone watching us, Jesus is real. Which means our faith is real. Which means our future is real and our hope isn't in vain. And so we rejoice. We glory in the tribulation that reveals that. That reminds us of that. Or not. See, Paul's talking, you almost get the impression he thinks it's inevitable, that it's automatic, that the result of tribulation is rejoicing from everybody always. If only. We know better, right? And Paul knows better. What Paul is saying is rejoicing can be our response to trials, should be our response to difficulties, but he's not naive. He knows that it's not automatic. Paul is saying, excuse me, Paul is saying what James will later say, that we should count it all joy when we go through various trials, when we fall into various trials, James 1 verse 2. Because each trial is an opportunity to see God work in us, to let God work in us. Or not. Because you know and I know that we don't always. Sometimes we fall into a trial And instead of giving it to God, we just get angry. Sometimes we fall into a trial and we just get sad. Sometimes we fall into a trial and we turn to sin. A lot of times we fall into a trial and we turn to sin to try to make ourselves feel better. And that makes sense. That makes sense because think about it. What is sin? Missing the mark is a good answer. Let me ask the question a different way. Why is sin? Why do we sin? We're sinners, but but what do we get out of it? What's the appeal? Sin is a non-Jesus way of dealing with the problems of life. Sin is a non-Jesus way of coping. If that sounds weird to you, try it on and wear it around the house for a minute. Think about your sin of choice. We all have one or, or more. What do your sin or sins of choice do for you? Isn't it true that they help you escape or ignore or reduce or vent or somehow deal with stress? I was test driving this idea on someone the other day. They said, well, what about gossip? I'm not sure that gossip fits into that formula. Gossip is a perfect example. What does gossip do? Gossip proves, I know something you don't know. I'm on the inside, you're on the outside. I have the scoop. I have worth. I have esteem now. I just proved it. What about stealing? How does that fit? I mean, it's an easy answer if you're stealing to get something that you didn't have, but what about people who steal for fun? It's its own answer. It's a buzz. It's, it's, a, it's a way to alleviate stress, or it's a way to demonstrate power. I can do this. I can get away with this. I can make things happen. I am in control. How about the person who has to be right all the time? The sin of pride. Eliminates the stress of being wrong, of not knowing what people will do if I'm wrong. It creates the illusion of control. We could keep going, but I think that you're picking up what I'm putting down. I think you can map it out for yourself. Pick a sin and ask yourself, what does it get me? We do the things we do to get the things we want. What will this sin get me? I promise you the answer will have something to do with avoiding reducing, ignoring, coping with the pain of living. 
Sin is a non-Jesus way of dealing with life. And that brings us back to what Paul was saying. In Christ, we've got a choice. In Christ, we have an option we didn't have before. The choice to let our trials drive us to sin and cope with our lives that way, or to let the pain drive us to sanctification and let Jesus deal with our pain that way. It's a choice. How do we make the choice? The choice to sin is easy. All we need to do is stay on autopilot. Do what you need to make you feel better. You don't need anyone to tell you how to sin. You're pro. You're getting endorsement deals. Expert sinners, every one of us. How do we choose not to sin? If, if sin is the non-Jesus way of dealing with life, what's the Jesus way? Paul says, hope does not disappoint because, notice the cause and effect, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The way that we let trials down, drive us down this path of hope is to choose to walk in the Spirit. To decide, to declare, I'm going to trust in the power of God. I'm going to rely on God the Holy Spirit. I'm going to believe He's sufficient. I'm going to let God prove Himself faithful. I mean, no surprise there, right? I didn't just blow anybody's mind. There's no, no surprise in anything I've been talking about so far. The universe is binary, and we know that. There's, there's God, there's not God. And every time we choose God, God shows himself faithful. And every time we see God choose, show himself faithful, it should be easier to choose him the next time. Every time God gets us through something, it's easier to remember that God is who he says he is, the God who gets us through things. And so we become people of faith. We come, become believers. Believers not just in Christ's finished work on the cross, but in his ongoing work in us and in his eternal work, his ultimate work in glory. So why aren't we more often? Trials offer us a choice. They bring us to a fork in the road. The choice between sin or sanctification. I look around the world today, I see a lot of sin. I look around the church today, I see a lot of sin. And I'm going to say a lot more than I I mean, what's a lot? More. Measurably more. Observably more than even a few years ago. I can't, I can't prove it because it's not that kind of thing. But I'm also not just guessing. I'm not just staring at people in evil surmising. I'm talking to people, and they're talking to me. And people are telling me, Patrick, I'm really struggling. And they're telling me that a lot. They're saying sin that hasn't been an issue for for years, it's back. The thing that that I used to struggle with, you know, on and off is now constant, everyday battle. I never imagined I'd wake up and be that guy, but I woke up and I'm that guy. And since I realized I was that guy, it's only gotten worse. I'm more that guy. Having a lot of these conversations. People coming to me, and I'm not going to lie. There have been times I've reached out to my guys, saying, hey, I need you to pray for me. Because my flesh is rearing up. Why? Why are so many of us struggling right now? Why are so many of us being tempted? That way was sanctification. Being tempted... Towards sin, choosing sin over sanctification. I don't think it's a great mystery. World's gone crazy. I mean, the world's just gone nuts. 
it, it, it's always been crazy. I'm not saying that it, uh, that it wasn't, but, but it's not static either. Chaos is increasing. That's just physics. Entropy increases, and we're not immune to that. We're part of the physical universe. The crazy comes and visits us. The chaos over the last few years has touched all of us. The uncertainty, what's going to happen with my health, my family's health, my job, our country, the isolation, the people I can't see, I can't visit, I can't gather with, that I can't get support from, the polarization. There's no such thing as a friendly disagreement anymore. Have you noticed that? Everything is a fight to the death. If you don't agree, you're not just wrong. You're either stupid or the enemy or both. And I'm going to assume you're both. On top of that, now we have inflation. All on top of the challenges of living that we already had. I could keep going, but I don't think I have to. I'm preaching to the choir on this, I think. Stress has increased for us all, amen? Has increased, is increasing, but here's what hasn't kept pace. Your wages haven't kept pace with inflation. We know that. But here's what hasn't kept pace with the crazy. Our devotional time hasn't kept pace. Our worship time hasn't kept pace. Our prayer time, our fellowship, our accountability haven't remotely kept pace. Remember, trials present us with a choice. Sinner sanctification. How do we choose sanctification? We remember the love of God that's been poured out on our hearts by the Holy Spirit that was given to us, and we let that love reign. We let that love lead. We let that love out to find expression. How do we do that? It starts with remembering that we can. It starts with remembering his love. And the way we do that, the way we remember the love of God is to spend time with God in his word and with his people and in prayer and in praise and in serving and in witnessing. When we spend time with God, we remember God and we remember we get to choose God. And as we do, the trials will cultivate perseverance. And the perseverance will prove character. And the character will remind us of hope. And we will rejoice. But man, so many people aren't even getting started. So many people. At the, at the very time, our dependency on God should be increasing. It's actually decreasing. And, and, the, and, this, and this unique, this is unique in my lifetime. There, 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 you know, there are uniquely specific personal things that happen to, to all of us at different times. But, but just the comprehensiveness of the, of, the, of the pain, of the challenge. The church should be experiencing revival because we should know that this is a time of all of the times that we need to turn to God. A metaphor. Normal person living a normal lifestyle needs something like 2,000 calories a day, is what they tell us, right? Something on that order. Read an article this weekend about four women who just rode across the Pacific. And in the article, it mentioned that they, each of them was, was consuming five, 6,000 calories a day. Guy I played football with, his big sister was the first woman to reach the North Pole by dog sled. 
And I remember her telling us that on that expedition, they were eating 10,000 calories a day. They were eating fat and sticks of butter just to try to consume enough calories to keep going through the cold and through the stress and through the physical exertion. Greater stress on the body, greater intake of food. Bring the metaphor back around. Greater stress on the mind and the soul and the heart should translate into a greater intake of Jesus. But I'll be honest, I'm seeing the opposite. Instead of more Jesus, less Jesus. The way that I know, church attendance is down. Not just here, but nationwide. Ministry involvement is down nationwide. Small group participation is down nationwide. And if all of that is true, and it is, study after study is is saying that, if public worship, public prayer, if that's down, private worship is down more. Because going to church is the easy part. This is the part with peer pressure. What do we do when we're alone by ourselves? And here's the thing. Even if it wasn't true, it is. But even if it weren't, let's, let's just pretend for the sake of argument that everything has stayed the same over the last two years. Fellowship, worship, prayer, devotion, participation, witness, service, all of it. Exactly the same. It isn't, but pretend that it is. What was enough to sustain us at the 2019 level of crazy is not enough to sustain us at a 2022 level of crazy. It's a crazier world. It's a harder world. It's a more hostile world for all of us, and we need more Jesus to cope with it. It's a crazier world. And so we have to choose sin or sanctification. We let it drive us to Jesus Confess our underdependence on him, he will show his unceasing faithfulness. Or we say, I'm going to muddle through with the same amount of Jesus as was occupying the, you know, my heart a couple years ago. It's not going to be enough. I'm going to buckle under the pressure. And when that depth of the relationship isn't enough to get me through today's trial, I'm going to turn to something else. Because the stress is there. And if I don't turn to Jesus, I need something. So if I'm not going to turn to Jesus, I'm going to turn to a not-Jesus method of coping and escaping and avoiding life. I'm going to turn to sin. Can I encourage you this morning as we wrap up? Can I, can I encourage us? Because this is, this is us. This is all of us. Can we make a different choice? The next time we're overwhelmed, overloaded, depressed, despairing, maybe. Instead of deciding Jesus isn't enough and looking behind door number two, instead of deciding that Jesus isn't enough, what if we realize, no, I just don't have enough Jesus and run to him for more worship, for more word, for more prayer, for more praise, for more accountability and support. Instead of deciding that Jesus isn't enough, let pain remind us, okay, that, that, that means I don't have enough Jesus. Instead of looking at a situation and saying, I don't see Jesus in this. I need something more. No, what if instead we do what we need to do to see him more? What if we put ourselves in a position to depend on him more and more? And can I encourage you? 
final thought, ask for help. Ask someone who wants what you want. Ask someone who wants to run to Jesus, who wants to see Jesus lifted high in their life, who wants to rejoice in Jesus. Ask that person, hey, can we meet up every week or so? Can we talk maybe every day? Can we pray together on a consistent basis? Can we remind each other, less of me, more of him is never automatic. It's always a choice. Less of me, more of him is always a choice. It's a choice to believe Jesus more and believe me less. It's a choice to choose Jesus more and choose me less. It's a choice to trust him more and trust me less, to rely on him more and rely on myself less. And the more we do, the more we will. Because the more we do, the more he does. And the more he does, the more we'll rejoice because hope does not disappoint. Jesus, thank you. You're so gracious. You came for us when we were sinners, when we were at war. You came for us. You wait for us. You're patient with us. And when we go down the same stupid roads, when we look for help from all of the same senseless places, you wait for us. And when in desperation we turn to you, you're there for us. You're always there for us. You never fail. And your grace is always enough.